Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, as China heads into its Golden Week holiday, there won't be much celebrating in the real estate sector. Chinese property stocks are trading near the lowest levels since 2011. And concerns are growing about more defaults among developers. How did the housing market in the world's second largest economy get so out of whack? And what will it take to fix it and help Chinese stocks catch a bit again? We'll get into it with a fund manager who focuses on China and emerging markets. But first, a programming note. Well, we've been going strong for four and a half years, but what goes up will be going on hiatus after this episode as the Bloomberg podcast team works on some exciting new shows. So keep an ear out for them. And as always, tweet to us at the handle at podcasts on X to let us know what you think of the shows. Well, Donna, is it still tweeting now that the thing's called X? Does what anybody do call, call Does anybody even call it X? Uh, Elon does. Elon? But who else? <laughs> you know, I, I never say, like, let me check my X app. But do you X a post? Do you, X a post. It, yeah. Huh. I haven't I heard anybody. I thought you anybody. would have the answers. I thought you'd have the answers. I'm not a me. hip millennial. But our guest this week, he might be active on X slash Twitter. I'm not sure. But he he's definitely been on the podcast before, and I'm happy to welcome him back. It's Jason Su, Chief Investment Officer at Raliant Global Advisors. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Super glad to be back. I wanted to start out with asking you to tell us a bit about yourself because you have a very interesting background having worked with Rob Arnott in the past. And you guys have, as Mike said, we're going to be focusing on internationally in this episode. So uh, you guys have a presence in a lot of places around the globe. So tell us a bit about yourself. Well, as you mentioned, you know, I, I started research affiliates with Rob Arnott. That's nearly 20 years ago now. I spun out in 2016 to focus uh, primarily on emerging markets. And of course, you know, when you think about emerging markets, you can't ignore China. So a lot of my research, uh, a lot of, you know, our quant models are built to create alpha uh, in China. You know, today we got ETFs in in the U.S. that gives you exposure to China, to EMX China, and actually more broadly, the, the global markets. Uh, basically, that just tells you the power of the quantitative methods when it comes to alpha generation uh, across the globe. Uh, you know, Today, I am talking to everyone from, from Dubai, and that's because uh, the Middle East has a, a almost opposite of the U.S., has a, a meaningful fascination, and it's probably, from a strategic allocation perspective, very overweight China. So that's why I'm out here. That might be our first uh, guest tuning in from Dubai. That's a, that's a first for us, Vildana. That's yeah, pretty cool. I, I've never been over there, so I was asking Jason before we started taping, like, what's it like? And he said it's very humid, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't expect. <laughs> 
But Jason, let's get into this whole uh, problems with the property real estate sector in China. I mean, you know, my sort of layman's understanding of it is that uh, China's developers just built entirely way too many apartments than what's really needed. You know, how, how did that happen? And how bad is it, do you think, the debt problems uh, of the developers who are having trouble selling all these apartments? Yeah. So when you think about kind of apartments in China, right, if we think about it from kind of the U.S. perspective, which is, well, you, you buy it to either live in it or you rent it out to collect the yield, then you're absolutely right that there is a overbuilding of apartments in China because there are lots and lots of apartments that are owned but not lived in and not rented. So it's very unproductive. But if you're a Chinese, and I'll give you kind of a funny anecdote. So I, I, I bought a few apartments in, in China very early on. So they're quite cheap at the time. And I go, oh, you know, they're kind of empty. So let me rent it out. When people realize that, they kind of look at me funny and go, Jason, are you in financial trouble? Why would you rent out your place to someone else for money? So Chinese don't think of apartment as like a fixed income, right? That produces a income for you. They think of it more like, I would say, how Indians think of gold, right? So it's more of a store of value. Uh, so they're perfectly happy holding an apartment, leaving it empty, believing it holds value. Uh, does it always go up? Frankly, doesn't enter into their psyche. Now, it's been lucky that it's been going up, but they really see it as a store of value, right? Just something that's solid, they can look at, they can point to, and oftentimes they brag about it. From that perspective, there's enormous demand when it comes to the Chinese appetite to buy property. And that demand is purely, almost like collecting, right? It is not for consumption uh, and it is not for investing. So I think that's just sort of useful to understand that. And I, I guess, you know, your question about, well, you know, are the uh, developers in trouble because maybe the Chinese are cooling off on their preference to hold, you know, wealth? In, in real estate, I'd say the Chinese developers are mostly in trouble, not because somehow Chinese investors have take. I think what's more an issue is a lot of them have simply geared up way too high. Your Country Garden, your China Evergrande that, that went under last year, uh, they simply borrowed way too much debt and they were hoarding land and hoarding apartments and not selling them fast enough to pay down the debt. Uh, they're just borrowing more to hoard more land. And I think they just irritated Beijing a little too much. And I would say these are not a real estate related triggering of bankruptcy, but a almost a policy engineered uh, bankruptcy target at real estate developers that have simply be become too, too geared, too levered up. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that because there's always sort of this assumption in the West that uh, Beijing can come to the rescue anytime it wants for for a problem like this. I don't know how true that is, but in this case, you know, they have done some things on the margin to try to shore up the the housing market, that uh, eased some of the mortgage restrictions. Uh, they're lowering uh, the reserve requirements for the banks. Is that all they can do? I mean, is it? it to your point, are they actually really holding off on sort of a big bazooka fix for this because they do want to wring some of that excess leverage out of the, the market? You know, how, how do you view the, the policy response to this and what the goals of it are? Yeah, I would say, in fact, I think the government doesn't think right now there is a meaningful problem in the real estate sector other than, oh, you know, consumers seem to be disappointed about 
how real estate is performing and therefore that lack of confidence may be causing them to not consume. So the government realized, ah, oh, you know, the most reliable channel for wealth effect, which is basically real estate appreciating that has caused households to be willing to increase consumption, that channel has temporarily gone away. So, you know, they, they recognize that. But of course, the bigger problem they're trying to contain originally was they didn't want real estate prices to get more expensive. Because it wasn't a social, I mean, it wasn't becoming a financial problem. It was becoming a social problem, right? Homes were too expensive for young people to buy. But from a financial problem perspective, if you look at the household sector, right? Chinese households are not levered when it comes to real estate. Developers are very levered, but the household, which is far more important, right? They're not levered because they can buy their first home uh, with money down and they pay quite a bit of money down and they they generally have to sort of have enough income to, to cover you know, the, the, the payment. If they want to buy a second house, it's got to be all cash, right? So most Chinese, and if you live next to the Chinese in your neighborhood, you, you realize they buy real estate all cash. And that's how they buy real estate in China as well. So you don't run into financial problem when you buy real estate all cash. It might be a bad investment, right? You might buy something and never goes up, right? It's very, it has no yield if you don't rent it. So it might not be a great investment, but it doesn't become a financial crisis. So I think the government's okay with where real estate is today, right? Price isn't going up. The, Bankruptcy you're seeing in the developer sector is very engineered. You know, on the household side, there's not a balance sheet crisis because they're not buying real estate on leverage. So they really don't think there's a meaningful problem there. Now, of course, they wish the Chinese household would have found like another store of value or another asset that's more productive that the government could sort of help manage and create a wealth effect. Now, they're hoping the stock market can be that, but you know, it remains to be seen if they can get all of that money, that unproductive money into in real estate, into the more productive long-term investment in the stock market. So say more about the consumer and the state of the Chinese consumer. Is that another facet that's under pressure right now in China? I think that is the biggest problem, right? Uh, the consumers, China and Be- I guess Beijing specifically, has been hoping that China wouldn't just be an export-oriented economy where everyone just works so really hard in the factory and ship everything overseas and then you know never spend money, right? And that's been a bit of a sort of a traditional, uh, you know, Chinese mentality when it comes to working excessively, saving excessively, and not consuming enough. Uh, so it's too dependent on export. So you know, gradually, domestic consumption has actually picked up quite a bit. We're seeing GDP going from you know. 36% export to today only about 16% export. So consumption has sort of picked up. Uh, but more recently, you know, consumption gone fairly flat. And part of that was COVID, right? I mean, when Americans came out of COVID, we go, yes, we saved up money. We haven't been spending money. So let's go spend money, right? There's this revenge spending. When Chinese got out of COVID, they go, my God, you know, that was horrible. So let's save more money so we can self-insure, right? It was a completely different mentality, right? So, you know, Chinese, after any major crisis and disaster, they just go and save more money. So part of it was that. And of course, part of it was, I think, disappointment with how Beijing has both managed, you know, the COVID uh, lockdown and opening up, and uh, also disappointment with how poorly GDP has performed post-COVID. So again, both of those has caused, I think, consumer to go into a wait and see mode. So you're not seeing people spending money. Uh, it's not because they don't have money, right? There's about $30 trillion, you know, not even renminbi, but dollars equivalent of household savings in bank accounts and sort of quasi-bank accounts, you know, money markets, uh, trust products. But they're just not spending money. It's a confidence issue. $30 yeah. Trillion. yeah. Wow. <laughs> they save a lot of money. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You launched the Raliant Quantum Mental China ETF. I guess it was at the end of 2020. Uh, it's been a, been a bit of a rocky launch, but it's down about 42% from the launch. Talk to us a little bit about the strategy, you know, how you pick stocks for that ETF and and why, uh, you know, why this early couple of years of it have been so rough. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the beta has been a major, major headwind. You know, I think we launched a product at the time where we believe, oh, you know, uh, as China gets incorporated more into the sort of MSCI basket, there's going to be sort of natural flow going into the asset class, and people are going to start to get more curious about, oh, can you directly invest in China rather than just buying Alibaba as an American ADR? Maybe that's look at the next Alibaba, right? An unknown firm listed onshore. So, you know, we launched an onshore product that focused on A-shares, and of course, we ran headlong into essentially three years of turbulence, all the way from the COVID lockdown to really government, uh, you know, Experimental, experimenting with policies of you know how to manage e-commerce platform companies, uh, and I would say Xi Jinping as he's marching into his third term, there's just a lot of uncertainty with regard to what will that look like, right? Will Beijing, uh, after power consolidation, uh, still kind of pursue the same kind of pro-growth policy from the previous eras, or uh, would there be a major shift, right? So there's just a, a lot of uncertainty, and I think so. Early signs has not really, you know cost people to, to develop confidence. And certainly you got the China-US uh, tension that started with uh, you know President Trump and continued through President Biden. So we ran into a lot of sort of beta headwinds, unexpected, of course, but uh, it is, I would say, par for the course when it comes to in investing in emerging markets. You know, this, this is China now. If it's not China, I'm sure uh, there are many, many other emerging countries that also run into such geopolitical tensions, you know, with someone, you know, be it with China, Deal with the U.S. and also their own domestic election cycle can can play in heavily into sort of the beta headwind as well. But I would say par for the course for for EM investing. So, can you talk about how you're making sense of what else is happening in the emerging markets space? Because emerging market stocks gave up their gains for the year. So, any gains that we had had up until I think it was a couple of days ago, actually, they gave up all of those gains. I'm wondering what the biggest pain point for emerging market stocks has been this year. Is it what's going on in the U.S. in terms of rising interest rates? Is it China? Is it, you know, a multiple <laughs> of those factors <laughs> weighing on EM stocks? How are you making sense of what's going on? Yeah, so you you basically have the perfect storm. Uh, so, you know, our, our quantitative process looks all the way from kind of the micro bottoms up and then, you know, taking into account kind of all the macro data. And uh, unfortunately, you got everything going against you, right? Kind of on a fundamental side, right? EM is still so dependent on DM consumption, right? So when EM is performing poorly, uh, oftentimes it's because EM is looking to DM to drive consumption growth so they can export, right? You know, 
EM is very much a raw resource exporting, uh, manufactured good exporting. So Europe has clearly been weak. And most of the manufacturer in, in EM has been sort of forecasting a U.S. hard landing. So they weren't aggressively uh, seeking to build capacity. And so you got, you got that going against EM. And then, of course, you have the dollar at record high yield. And so you know, EM have historically depended on a lot of global capital. And now you have this global capital fly away from EM back to the dollar because of dollars safety and yield is just so much more attractive. So it's pulling capital away from some of the capital poor economy. So that's a that's a that's a major headwind as well. So you kind of got a fundamental against you. Now you got kind of the financing, the liquidity part against you. And from a sentiment perspective, you know, EM sentiment is more fragile, right? Local stock markets are shallow. So when we, you know, when our quant scores look at sort of sentiment scores, what we've seen is sort of, you know, as poor of a sentiment score across the board for EM, not just for China, but really across the board for EM and not just domestic flows, but even, you know, more long-term institutional global flows are showing uh, very poor sentiment. Where do you see opportunities in EM right now then? How, how are you thinking about the broader landscape? So I would say, you know, short-term versus long-term. Short-term, I would say the interesting and fun plays are really all the uh, friend-shoring themes. And then, you know, those could, could last all the way for a few months, you know, perhaps maybe, you know, a, a year or two. Uh, so, you know, you, you have, you know, Mexico now being, I think, front and center for a lot of people thinking, hey, you know, friend-shoring Mexico is an obvious candidate as an EM economy that's big enough and obviously close enough to, to the U.S. For, for that theme to really sort of drive investment into, into Mexico. India, uh, obviously, you know, Vietnam, you know, being where a lot of Chinese uh, entrepreneurs and factories have moved production to. And so that French showing exercise has sort of pushed a lot of foreign direct investments from China, you know, and from Chinese into Vietnam. So I would say there are a lot of opportunities around the French shoring concept. That's kind of in the short term. Um, and we obviously we saw that major rally for, for India before it pulled back more recently as well. But in the long run, I would say in the long run, where I think the opportunities are, uh, it'll continue to be the export oriented and high value add economies. You know, your China, your India, and increasingly so your, your Vietnam, your Indonesia as more foreign direct investments, you know, leave China to, to go to these smaller economies. They, they're, they're going to follow kind of the, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and of course, the China model of exporting uh, and then through exporting, improving corporate profits, improving GDP growth. Uh, and I'm probably a bit more mixed about purely resource-based EM economy because they seem to go through these boom-bust cycles that are just driven by commodities prices. Now, commodities prices could sustain the current high level uh, due to geopolitical tension. But without really strong value add, I, I'm a little, you know, less fond of a pure resource-oriented EM economy. So very fond of the, the Asian EM because uh, you can see all of them are climbing the productivity curve and the French showing is certainly going to accelerate the process. I like that expression, French showing. It's a lot more uh, friendly expression than the rest of the world is is uh, at each other's throats. You know, <laughs> French showing is the, uh, the positive side of that, I guess. But yeah, Jason, I'm glad you brought up the dollar because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, the 
really severe weakness in the Chinese currency lately. Uh, it's even been sort of testing that 2% trading ban that the Pe- People's Bank of China sets every day. I mean, is there a risk of the PBOC sort of losing control of the exchange rate? Or do they always have enough sort of firepower to keep it in that you know range that they want it in? Yeah, so I would say the PBOC is pretty mixed when it comes to managing the, the renminbi, you know, part of the PBOC clearly understands that it is still an export-oriented economy and for, you know, stimulating the export sector, which is really great for domestic em- employment uh, and obviously key cities that, that have thrived because of manufacturing, like a weaker renminbi helps, right? And so it understands that. Now, of course, it doesn't like to be labeled as a currency manipulator, doesn't want sanction that comes with that. So this is sort of perfect time as the dollar increased rates and then have strengthened, you know, for running B to weaken, it's really, it's certainly weakening at the perfect time when China is experiencing uh, sort of deflation, right? And so I don't think the PBOC minds it. Now, of course, the PBOC is sort of, you know, constantly watching to see if intervention is necessary. Again, I mean, from an intervention perspective, given that, uh, first of all, China has a sort of massive dollar reserve and, you know, other currency reserve, and given that increasingly, you know, China has been successful in marketing renminbi as a viable reserve you know certainly for for you know clearing uh for for some of the the energy related resource renminbi in the position it is in right now doesn't really have a uh, an issue much like you know the latin currency when they're trying to defend a peg right you don't you just don't have that issue because of the reserve they have and also the reserve status that renminbi is increasingly uh achieving jason i'm curious how you think investors are thinking about em opportunities right now because we've had barring the last couple of weeks maybe we've had really strong performances from US large cap tech companies so far this year uh, and so i'm i'm just wondering how you think people in general are thinking about investing in EM versus investing in large cap US tech companies or even to to make it maybe more relevant to the last couple of weeks investing in shorter dated bonds or cash-like instruments where you can maybe get, you know, north of 5%. Some of the yields are like 5.5% currently. I mean, historically, people bought EM because they say, hey, I'm happy to take some risk if this allows me to buy kind of the foundational components for growth. Like you look at EM, you go, yes, a young, hungry workforce, and that's got to drive growth, right? Hey, it's an inefficient market. So, you know, that's got to provide lots of opportunity uh, for, for growth because, you know, capital is dearth in those markets. So if you can go supply capital, you can return, you know, a fantastic return. But I would say more recently, uh, you kind of have, you know, those thesis going against you a little bit in that uh, people are now looking at U.S. and say, well, you know, if the U.S. is going to be at, you know, ground zero of the AI innovation, right? I mean, maybe that's where I go buy growth. Right? Maybe growth is not about, you know, buying, you know, young, lesser skilled labor cheap, but it might be buying AI technology that'll replace, you know, that 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 labor. Now, I think that thesis is wrong because, you know, most of our AI is replacing. American white color worker rather than factory workers, right? Because we don't actually have very functioning robots, right? We we just have Chat GPT that can write law briefs. You know, that's not what we're <laughs> getting the Chinese factory workers to. But be as it may, I think there's just a lot of now believe that. Oh, if I want to buy growth, maybe I should just dump a lot of money into Nvidia, right? and I'll buy growth that way. I don't need to take the, the risk of EM. And certainly, you know, historically, there's a lot on fixed income side, right? You also have a lot of people going to 
uh, uh, EM fixed income for the higher yield, knowing that they're taking currency risk, they're taking a lot of these government mismanagement risk. But today, you look at how much the dollar is yielding at, it's harder to make that case. So you kind of got a bit of double whammy against EM right now. The two key theses, you know, growth uh, and and that additional yield. Uh, you, you, U.S. seems to be making that available through the large cap tech and and just the dollar treasury yielding at at, at you know five five and a half percent. So rather tough as a headwind for EM in the short run, right? In the short run, I mean, we expect we fully expect you know the U.S. interest rate is going to get cut because we we owe you know thirty four trillion dollars. So we prefer to owe thirty four trillion dollars at zero interest rate than six percent. So you imagine that's going to get cut and the attractiveness of the EM currency and yield is going to come back. You also expect that we'll quickly realize that you know there's tech growth, but then there's a lot of manufacturing that's needed to produce that tech. So EM is still going to be an important driver. So in the long run, I think those thesis are true. But short run, uh, you know, past performance tends to draw a lot of flow. So US has had the best performance. You know, Chase, I know you've done some work looking at whether it would make sense to sort of carve China out of the emerging market uh, stock indexes you know, as China decoupling from the U.S. And, and maybe even the other emerging markets. Talk to us a little bit about your thinking around that. You know, are we going to hear more and more about sort of EMX China type of funds? What's your take on, you know, the notion of EM indexes uh, that exclude China? You know, Mike, when I originally did the research, you know, my, my rationale for Xing out China was more about, you know, well, China is so big inside EM, right? So if you don't exile China, then China has a bad year, EM has a bad year. So you're not getting a lot of diversification benefit. You take out China, China's not very correlated with the rest of EM, so you got more flexibility, correlation benefit is better, and then it just seems to make sense. It's like how we took U.S. out of global equity. So people you know, right. did U.S. and global U.S., right? That, that yeah, parallel China- makes sense. China's what close to half of the like the MSCI EM index something like that. You know when when, when before it declined forty percent, it was about fifty <laughs> <50%. laughs> percent. And so you know that I thought was like a very academically uh, defensible reason, but you know no one paid attention to that. But today people <laughs> are liking that concept because they they sort of have a sort of bad taste in their mouths. Like ah, oh, you know China's falling too much. If I had taken China out of my EM, my EM would have done better, right? So there's a little exposed regret. And there's also, uh, I think, a lot of value judgments. And again, you know, I'm, 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 you know, perfectly happy where people both invest and impose some kind of ESG value judgment in their portfolio. So it makes sense, right? Like take China out, it gives you that flexibility, right? You can be a, you can be an ESG investor and say, well, China doesn't, you know, you know, the, the fact that the government is communist, so that's not consistent with my value. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you could be like a contrarian investor and say, wow, you know, everyone has, hates China, so I'm going to buy China, and that could work as well. So you take China out of EM, it allows people to to sort of asset allocate, whether because you know they really like China or they really hate China, and they don't just have to do it within the context of one big EM basket. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Jason, I can't even imagine all of the things you have to be keeping up with in the world to be able to formulate some of these thoughts. Like I'm thinking about some of the elections that are coming up in major EM countries, lots of stuff happening in Argentina, etc. I'm wondering what, how you're thinking about the remainder of this year and whether or not you see more volatility or if there are some opportunities to be buying you know, different EM stocks. Also, we really like EM. Again, the short term is is hard to predict. And my guess is for the rest of the year, uh, sentiment will remain negative. The volatility will be there. Uh, but, you know, you know, most of our clients are large institutions. Uh, so at least I can tell you for institutions to build a position to, you know, dollar cost averaging into a position is a great way to invest for the long run. And from a valuation perspective, EM is cheap, you know. You can't expect to go into EM and immediately see it sort of turn around uh, and and start you know recovering. But you can probably bet on in ten years if you buy at such a cheap level. If you're willing to sort of ignore short term fluctuation, you're going to do plenty well. And 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 like I said early in the program, uh, like the world's always like the twin engine, right? Like kind of U.S. as the head of DM, really innovating, so it's driving growth through innovation and EM. Is achieving growth what? through imitation, right? So you got innovation and imitation. Those are two amazing engines that keep the world going. And then you should, you know, have both. <laughs> right. uh, you know, Jason, you touched briefly on uh, the trade tensions between the U.S. and China. I'm wondering how you're thinking about that going forward. I mean, what is sort of the status there? It seems to me like kind of a stalemate. Uh, a standoff, uh, and but is there a path towards reconciliation? You know, it, where does this relationship go? I'd say, yeah, there's a lot of you know bickering back and forth. I, I tend to see the U.S.-China relationship as a abusive codependent marriage, right? Like if you think about it, right? Like the U.S. is the world's biggest consumer, right? Uh, and we run a massive trade deficit, uh, and that just means someone must be a big producer right we we can't all be consuming right someone's got to make stuff and we can't all be borrowing someone's got to lend right like us consumes and we borrow from foreign countries and china needs to be that willing partner to produce and lend us money to consume so we can't break away from each other right and then we're both too big right it's not like us can go replace china with vietnam and say hey we'll give you the chinese deal right where you do all of our manufacturing and lend money to us because vietnam's got what a population of 60 million right and china's got you know 1.3 you know billion people uh, so just the math of the two economies being so large and they almost are like the perfect fit for each other well jason su he is the chairman and chief investment officer at Raliant global advisors uh always great to catch up with you jason and hear how you're thinking about the world uh you've got such a great way of explaining everything and as valdana said you've got your eye all over the world which we we really appreciate um but we can't let you go quite yet we do have a tradition on the podcast of uh sharing the craziest things we've seen in markets this week Vildana, let's start with you. I have a good one that I found on X. Mine is about Taylor Swift and well, Travis Kelsey. Uh, okay. Yeah. I know you you prefer the Swift a separate Swift Kelsey pairing on the Eagles, probably. That's this one right. this one's more important to the world of pop culture and, and, and Swifties like me. But just to show you the Taylor Swift effect, this is this is a tweet from Joe Pompliano. 
Taylor, as we as the entire world knows now, was at the Kansas uh, City Chiefs game over the weekend. She was in a box with Travis Kelsey's mom and a bunch of friends, and they were having a really great time. X slash Twitter went wild, and, and people everywhere went wild for this. Anyway, after you know Taylor Swift visited him at this game, he gained more than 300,000 social media followers. Wow. He saw they saw a 400% increase in merchandise sales and his jersey became one of the top 5 selling jerseys in the NFL. The NFL changed their Twitter X, well, I can't say X honestly. <laughs> their their X description to say like Taylor Swift was here. Like it just <laughs> the the impact was mind-blowing to me. My my wife has a conspiracy theory that uh, ratings were going down for the NFL games, and they needed they needed to bring in an. Influencer. I've heard this conspiracy theory before. <laughs> I'm not I like, in. I I don't buy into it, but I like it. I like it. That's a good. As far as conspiracy theories go, that's a that's a good one. Four hundred percent increase in merchandise sales. That's huge. That's your market angle, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly. I need to hire Taylor Swift to sell my ETF. <laughs> 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 you got to make a friendship bracelet with the ticker symbol on it, Jason. Yep. That's what that's what Kelsey did. He made a friendship bracelet with her number. Who would have thought that would work? Well, how about you, Jason? You see anything crazy uh, in the last week or so? Well, I mean, it, it's a long running theme for me. And and because I have such a grudge against NVIDIA, I, I, I saw this <laughs> on X. I saw this on X, but it, it may have been on there for a while now because I'm in the Middle East. I'm a little out of touch, right? Someone actually said, like uh, NVIDIA may be a bit of a Ponzi scheme because apparently they bought a company who is like the biggest buyer of their chips. And like if you work out the accounting, all of their sales growth was driven by, you know, this other company. So there there may be some funky, weird thing going on. But in full disclosure, I, my big, big grudge against NVIDIA is not because I got a short position in it and got my clock clean. <laughs> None of that. It's because my mom bought NVIDIA at 100 bucks a share. It went up to 250 on that crazy upgrade. And I said, Mom, this, this makes no sense. You should sell it, right? It, it, it reminds me of Cisco during the tech bubble where everyone says, oh, of course, everyone would need to buy a router and, you know, Cisco will own the world. And so, you know, that's kind of the same narrative I hear about NVIDIA. So I told my mom, ah, sell, sell NVIDIA. You make such a good game. And of course, then it goes to like 450. So every time my mom sees me, right, <laughs> she's like... I have an idiot for a son. <laughs> so, I, I, until Nvidia falls below two fifty, I'm going to be like pu putting a hex curse on that stock. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, that's kind of uh, I think very indicative of uh, the mania that takes over. That just doesn't seem to make sense. Now, I granted Nvidia's got a a, a, decent, a, a very good bull case, but uh, you know. When, when your mom's outperforming you, you know, you know, you know, something's something's out of whack with markets. I love that story. That's hilarious. Uh, all right. Well, I'll give you mine. Viltana, do you know what the highest denomination Federal Reserve bill is? In other words, the highest denomination currency, paper currency is right now. A hundred bucks. Did you know during the Great Depression uh, and uh, prior to that, I assume, too, there were bills uh, denominated in ten thousand. There were ten thousand dollar banknotes uh, available. They never circulated publicly. They were basically basically just used to transfer funds between various Federal Reserve banks. But 
this is according to a story in the New York Post. One of them uh, that was printed in 1934 just came up for auction. Uh, and the picture on it is President Abe Lincoln's Treasury Secretary, Salmon P. Chase. Wow. The question for you two game show contestants right now is, what do you think this $10,000 bill from 1934, pristine condition, sold for at the Long Beach Currency Expo? You can't use it, right? You know, like, that's a darn would, good question. You would just have it like to hang on your wall. That's a very good question. I assume I'd have to zoom in on the picture and see if it says legal tender for all debts, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. I will tell you this. For what it sold for, you would not want to spend it. That's one hint to the value that it sold for. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's it, it's below 2.3 million, which is, I think, what the Tom Brady baseball card fetched. <laughs> so it can't be more valuable than that. I'm going to put a crazy number out there. Half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. All right, Vildana, what's your bid for a $10,000 Salmon P. Chase bill from 1934? I literally have no guess what, like, at all. So I'm just going to go with 10000 10000 You think yeah. it's just sold for par? Yeah, yeah. I'm just going value. with that. Yeah. All right, Jason. It's a shame your mom's not here because you just got some redemption here. <laughs> uh, you're very close. $480,000 wow. for the $10,000 bill. Yeah. Wow. Apparently, it's a big, this is a huge collector's market, is old bills of high denominations like this. Who knew? You learn something new every Usually, week, I, I have like at least a little bit of like a feeling toward what something might be, like, you know, even if I'm wildly off. But on this one, I, I had absolutely nothing. I just would not even know. Your hint didn't help at all. For what it sold for, you wouldn't want to spend it. Yeah. You know, because there's no there's no NFC auctions now. So people <laughs> yeah. need something to collect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jason Sue of Reliant Global Advisors. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Madonna. Thank you, Jason. Well, thank you for listening to What Goes Up. While we're on hiatus, you can follow or subscribe to What Goes Up to stay tuned for updates. We'll be dropping information about what's next here in this feed. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcast on X. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.